Today is May 24th, 2014, and this is episode 112. This program is intended for informational and educational purposes only. Cryptocurrency is a new field of study. Consult your local futurist, lawyer, and investment advisor before making any decisions whatsoever for yourself. Visit the new letstalkbitcoin.com for daily updates. Welcome to Let's Talk Bitcoin, a twice-weekly show about the ideas, people, and projects building the digital economy and the future of money. My name is Adam B. Levine. I'm the editor-in-chief of Let's Talk Bitcoin and the LTB Network. Here on Let's Talk Bitcoin, we've uh, spoken a lot about 2.0 protocols, so-called uh, Mastercoin, NXT, Counterparty, BitShares, ProtoShares, um, TreeChains, SideChains. I'm sure I'm, I'm missing a few others here. Um, I, I want to go through real... Oh, Ethereum, of course. Ethereum uh, has not st- still has not done their fundraiser at the time we're recording this yet, but they have had several uh, actual releases, and, and there's real uh, stuff to work on right now. So I think it's worthwhile, even though we don't have any guests on to talk about this for uh, myself and the other two hosts on Let's Talk Bitcoin, of course, Stephanie Murphy and Andreas Antonopoulos here with me today again. Hello. Hey. To kind of just go through them real quickly and give an update on where everybody is, at least as far as I can tell. My disclaimer, this is just generally true. I invest in cryptocurrency. So if you hear me talking about something, you should basically assume that I have invested in it. And you just should assume that whenever you're listening to any of us talk about this stuff, really, uh, unless anybody has specific disclaimers to the other direction. I invest in pork belly. So if uh, if you hear me talking about bacon, I have uh, multiple interests. I can't really come up with anything better than that, but I like bacon and cryptocurrency. How about that? <laughs> <laughs> uh, special interest if I've ever heard one. The uh, earliest project that I guess we touched on was MasterCoin. Way back in August, uh, I did an interview with, gosh, with uh, J.R. Willits about his MasterCoin fundraiser, which was, again, one of the, the earliest one of these MetaCoin protocols, where the idea is that you build on top of Bitcoin, and then on top of that, you build new things like, in the case of MasterCoin, it's uh, new types of assets. And then also you can do betting and contracts for difference and things like that with it. MasterCoin has gone through a kind of long development cycle, and there was a lot of question about you know, how well they were doing just because they were taking in the Bitcoin space kind of a long time to, to do it. But they have now had their first release. A couple of weeks ago, a company called MadeSafe, Stephanie, that you interviewed uh, the CEO of. Yeah, David Irvine. Yeah, David Irvine successfully raised somewhere between 6 and $8 million, depending on what exchange rate you're using, in MasterCoin and Bitcoin in about five hours, actually. Um, it mm. was supposed to be a four-week-long fundraiser. And this was, again, the, the, the MadeSafe project is uh, a distributed computing network. Basically, it's like Bitcoin, except that instead of downloading the blockchain, you are uh, giving over part of your computational power and part of your storage capacity on your computer. Or if you don't want to do that, you can just have some of these tokens and you can buy it with that instead of giving some of your own. They were able to successfully raise those funds, but it happened in such a chaotic and, and in a totally fast way. There was a lot of backlash against it. And there were uh, a lot of people who were looking at this and saying, oh, this was just a trick to to increase the the value of, uh, of MasterCoin. And from the outside, I think it really looked a lot like that. But I think that the thing that struck me throughout this entire process with MasterCoin and the MadeSafe thing is that they thought that they were going to fail. Like, I mean, they thought that they weren't going to raise over the course of four weeks. They weren't going to sell out. And so they put all of these things in place to make it so people would be incentivized or more likely to buy sooner rather than later. And turns out the demand completely overwhelmed the supply. And so they, you know, 
it's also a funny thing because when you're talking about crypto raises, right, when you're talking about crypto sales or crowd sales or whatever you want to call them, it, part of it is about raising the money. But the other part of it is about trying to get it out to as many people in the community as possible, because those people then have an interest in paying attention to your project, where if they didn't have some of your token, then they might not. And so it's it's caused this weird sort of uh, sort of tension. But, uh, you know, with the with the main safe project and a lot of people are having kind of bad feelings about it. But overall, the, the project was very successful. And I think it, it sets an interesting precedent moving forward that maybe you know, that maybe these things will either succeed or fail so fast that there's no middle ground, that good ideas, because there's all of this pent up demand for for implementation of good ideas, will be jumped on, pounced on and, and you know, and filled up very quickly. And then on the other side, you have ideas that aren't as appealing to whatever that particular demographic wants. And maybe they won't get any funds at all, because again, it's so specific. So MasterCoin has kind of some interesting challenges. They're going through a uh, also kind of an internal purge, it seems like. I know that they've uh, let a number of people go or are intending to let a number of people go. Um, but, you know, I mean, like, again, MasterCoin, uh, you know, first one out the gate. I think that's really important. Uh, they had a successful fund, uh, they had a successful crowd sale. Um, they managed to deliver the tokens. Uh, and uh, and yeah, just in general, it, I think it was it was a positive launch that had a lot of hiccups in it and that hopefully they learned a lot of lessons from. <laughs> Uh, MasterCoin okay. does have some problems. They raised a lot of money at the beginning. And so because they raised money, they've had the problem of having to spend it well. And depending on who you ask, that has gone to varying degrees of good or bad. They have a role-based bounty system, which is really interesting. And again, they've done bounties in a way that they haven't felt like was particularly successful, but they've spent a lot of money. So again, I think that there's this push and pull between projects that fund versus projects that don't. And projects that fund have more resources. They have the ability to execute, but at the same time, they have the responsibility of spending the money appropriately. And, you know, sometimes you don't, whether it's intentional or not. So I think that's a problem that MasterCoin um, still really has to deal with. And it looks like they're trying to, you know, like I said, they're shaking up their team internally and looking at different incentive structures. So I, I think it's, it's positive direction there. The wallet tools that they have out, they have a, a couple of different uh, wallets that now make it so that you can send uh, MasterCoin fairly easily, a couple of web wallets, two web wallets, and a desktop wallet. I have not been impressed with really any of them. Of the various tools that are actually out, I've found the tools that are on the MasterCoin side more difficult to use, just generally less intuitive than, like I said, the other available options. But again, this is very early in the process. I'm still waiting to see what tools look like later on. So what do you guys think about MasterCoin? Any thoughts on that? Yeah, I have to say, I agree with you about the ease of use of the wallets or whatever. Uh, you know, it, it's difficult to figure out for me. And I'm not like a super newbie. <laughs> yeah, the multi-wallet I, thing, it's all about the metaphors, right? So I think that, you know, again, like people are really trying different things and seeing what kind of, you know, how does it make sense to have these different types of tokens? Because right now there are just a few types of tokens, but eventually there are going to be thousands of types of tokens or hundreds of thousands of types of tokens. And these, these solutions kind of need to scale. There's a comparison of currencies with internet in the 1990s. Well, I think if you look at it that way, MetaCoins and protocol layers above Bitcoin that are implemented by things like MasterCoin or Counterparty, uh, Ethereum, etc., are really like the World Wide Web. It's a completely new layer on top of the system. If you remember, the web came out at a time when even the basic function of email was still so new to people and people weren't sure what to make of it. 
And the very first browsers were so horrible and clunky. A glimpse of the possibility for those who had the vision to see it. So I, when I first opened, you know, NCSA Mosaic, it was not anything like the experience of even a year or two later. It really took until Netscape 2.0 to really see the power of the web on the internet. So if Bitcoin is still in the early 90s of the internet, I would say MetaCoins are at the NCSA mosaic level. Just because it's clunky doesn't mean that you can't see through. If you if you have the vision, you can see through that and see the immense possibility that is enabled by layering on top of the of the blockchain security model to implement completely new levels of uh, features. And, and then, of course, to me, I think even more so Ethereum with the idea of a generalized uh, blockchain platform with Turing complete language that can enable a myriad of applications to be custom written for that language. I, I think that is a, a tremendous uh, innovation. And um, I, I'm not saying that Ethereum will be it, but what Ethereum does will happen one way or another, perhaps by Ethereum, perhaps by a clone of Ethereum, or perhaps by something that comes even later. But again, it, it gives you a glimpse into just what is possible. And it proves conclusively the underlying idea that Bitcoin is not just a currency. This is not just money for the internet. The people who have the vision to look beyond the currency as a speculative instrument to see this as a platform and then to all of the applications that could be built using that platform and inspire a generation of developers, of programmers, of designers, of entrepreneurs who will eventually not just innovate as they already are doing, but uh, wrap these things into easier to use interfaces and easier to use packages until everybody can use them and we can bring that power to everyone. Absolutely. I think that you're totally right there. This is the very, very early start of all of these things. And, you know, the reason why the tools are so painfully, you know, just not usable in general terms is is because we haven't identified yet the things that will make them more usable. We haven't identified yet the problems. I mean, now we're starting to, you know, nobody knew that a 10 minute long block time was going to be a problem for these metacoins until in practice, we saw that when you actually are waiting there 10 minutes, sometimes it actually takes 40 minutes for a block to tick in the Bitcoin network. And there really isn't too much you can actually, there's nothing that you could do about it. It's just kind of the way this system works. So because of that, suddenly there is a reason to use a faster blockchain, whereas before there isn't. But we don't know that until the first applications are built on top. So you brought up Ethereum. I was going to go about these in the order which they kind of have been proposed or launched or whatever. But let's let's jump right to that. I, I would like to talk about that. Ethereum is such a fascinating project to me. They've done a great job of basically looking around the community and not just the Bitcoin community, but like the, the cryptography community, the financial services community and picking out really smart people and then getting them excited about Ethereum and starting working on it before they're even getting paid. From that standpoint, Ethereum has been successful in a way that I've never seen a cryptocurrency project be successful. I'm super curious what you guys think about it. Well, the other way to say that it's been successful is to say that it's had a lot of hype. And I think you could definitely say that about Ethereum. Well, how do you define hype, though? I mean, I would consider it hype if there wasn't a product, but there actually is a product that they're putting out new versions of. You know, it's, it's an alpha 
But I mean, there are projects that launched three months before that still haven't reached that point. So that's the thing is that, yeah, there's hype, but it seems like there's some meat there, too. Okay, so there's an alpha client. And, you know, please, I'm not trying to rag on Ethereum. I wish them all the success in the world. Okay. And I'm curious to see how it shakes out. But okay, they've, they've got an alpha client, but they're at conferences saying that they want to re-engineer society and completely change the world. Well, but isn't that what we, isn't that what Andreas and I just were talking about? Yeah. I mean, like we didn't use those words, but. Well, so you, you have to separate again the design pattern or the idea from the current implementation of that idea. The design pattern of a Turing complete uh, platform based on the blockchain for negotiating contracts is brilliant, genius on a level, almost equivalent to Satoshi's in terms of taking existing technologies and just pushing them to a whole other level. And and I think Vitalik is one of the most brilliant people ever for building it and designing it and coming up with the idea it is. Now, the instance of Ethereum as implemented now is very early stage code, just like NCSA Mosaic. And the organization around Ethereum is a whole other issue altogether. But it doesn't matter because the idea of a Turing complete blockchain platform survives Ethereum the instance and Ethereum the organization and even Ethereum the brand uh, and can be re-implemented by someone else. Someone can fork it and build another Turing complete blockchain platform today. And I expect we're going to see that too, just like we saw altcoins we're going to see alt contracts. Yeah, I've already heard um, people talking about that who have different criticisms of Ethereum and so forth. But Andreas, you know, since you really seem to have caught the vision, you know, I've had this explained to me a couple of times, but show me the the problems that Ethereum solves and paint a picture to me of how how it solves them. Absolutely. The the fundamental problem that Ethereum solves is this. If you have a new application you want to create that can benefit from a decentralized blockchain consensus mechanism. Today, you have to build both the application and the consensus blockchain network to support it. The problem with that is that in order to get enough hashing power or enough consensus security behind that new blockchain, you have to either recruit people to the idea, application, or philosophy of what you're trying to build, or you have to ride on top of something that already exists and then take all of the limitations that that brings with it. So the two choices before Ethereum were build an altchain, in which case, because this altchain is dedicated to your new application, Getting sufficient security in your consensus mechanism required recruiting enough people to your application, and that's very difficult to do, or riding on top of something like Bitcoin, but then accepting all of the limitations it has for general purpose applications. Ethereum solves one problem, and that is you no longer have to make that choice. You get to have a general purpose blockchain consensus mechanism that you can build different applications on top with very few limitations. And anyone who participates in that contributes to the shared consensus power consensus security mechanism of everyone mining that blockchain without having to recruit people to their specific application. So for example, let's say you decide you want to do a new altcoin that does distribution of basic income 
um, every round so that you're implementing something like the Swiss basic income guarantee system from a political and economic and monetary philosophy uh, within your currency. Now, previously, you could either build that on top of Bitcoin with all the limitations that incurs, which by definition has to be a conservative and slow moving platform, or you build an alt chain, but you can only persuade people to mine if they like the Swiss basic income redistribution model. So you have to sell them into your politics in order to get them to secure your network. Well, Ethereum solves that by saying, well, you can build that on top of Ethereum and people will mine not because they agree with the politics of your currency, but because they want to mine blockchain consensus platforms that can support any application. So it solves that basic conundrum. And that opens the door for every single point of view and expression of that point of view to get out of the gate with a consensus level of security that's un, un, unimpeachable and unassailable. Everything you're saying, I get it. It sounds good. I guess the thing that freaks me out is the way that I often hear it talked about, which is that this is going to change everything. Now we're going to have a completely transparent society where everything is on the blockchain and everything is managed through Ethereum. <laughs> Well, that's great. I mean, hey, set a vision. And then if you fail to meet it and your vision is enormous, then you still achieve a hell of a lot. Uh, You don't have to buy the whole vision to see that this offers a significant new uh, platform for building consensus applications. Whether you believe that consensus applications are the future of all applications or that the ability to build consensus applications easily fundamentally changes society just doesn't change the fact that consensus applications are useful. The argument you're making, Stephanie, is an argument that I think a lot of people make when they first hear of Bitcoin and they hear us talking about fundamentally changing financial services. And sometimes you just have to sell them on the makes shopping easier. Um, so, well, uh, I think they have a right to be skeptical about it. I mean, it's okay absolutely. to ask questions. And I'm not like, I don't need it dumbed down to for me to like accept it. It's just that. When I hear somebody and, and talking, that's not what I'm saying. I'm, I'm simply saying you don't have to accept the the full extreme vision, which is utopian by definition, is very ideological and utopian, in order to see the basic utility. And yeah. I mean, again, their community, who's actually working on the stuff, is big enough that they have kind of like inside jokes unto themselves. It's it's kind of clubby, you know. They they have a lot of people who are involved in this project. One thing I notice from Ethereum people is that they oftentimes have this like smile where it's like, I know what's up and you don't. Like a lot of times when you're talking to someone, have you noticed this, guys? Sure. In yeah. Bitcoin or Ethereum? In Ethereum. Oh, sorry if I said. Bitcoin. Well, and okay. yeah, Well, I would say all of that applies to Bitcoin as far oh, as yeah, the rest it applies of the world to Bitcoin is too. Absolutely, but but it apply. But the point is, is that. With Bitcoin, it doesn't apply to people who understand Bitcoin. With Ethereum, it applies to people who understand Bitcoin, but people who don't necessarily understand Ethereum at the particular level that they're talking about. So, yeah, well, Adam, I think like it's a good thing to bring that up because it's it's not again, I don't think we're trying to criticize. It's just like this is the perspective. This is what somebody sees. And is that a good way to get people comfortable with this revolutionary kind of technology? You know, maybe it's not. But I don't think that's the point is my point is that they haven't started fundraising yet. So right now, their target market, the people that they're trying to keep excited, impressed and involved are people who are working for free. 
you know, at the point that they come out with a product or not even the product at the point that they come out with their crowd sale that will allow them to vest other people within the community, then I suspect we'll see the marketing shift to something that's more oriented towards people. Right now, I really feel like it's just clubby. You know, I mean, like, and that's not it's not intended as an insult. It's just like kind of just what it feels like. It feels like these people are all friends and they know each other and they know what's up and they're working on something that they think they're cool. And at the point that it's ready for the rest of us, they'll, they will all know how cool it is too. I don't know if that's true or not, but that's the vibe I get. And I do think that the application is important too. Like I, you know, the, the idea, as Andrea said, I really think that you can separate out the marketing from the innovation. And I'm curious, do you have any concerns about the innovation or is this entirely on the marketing side? You know, um, most of my concerns are about the marketing and sort of the way it's presented. But of course, it relates to the technology and the innovation because it's about what does this thing actually do, you know? Yeah. And that remains to be seen. We don't know what it's going to do until it gets to more advanced versions. So I'm keeping a healthy attitude of skepticism about myself. CryptoKit is the world's first Chrome browser Bitcoin wallet. It's the easiest, fastest Bitcoin wallet payment system. With a simple one-click install, it takes just seconds to get your wallet set up. And because CryptoKit finds the address and payment for you, there's no more fussing around or tab switching. CryptoKit is more than just a wallet. It comes with a preloaded PGP-encrypted social network, news feeds from Reddit and Google, and up-to-date charts from exchanges. Finally, CryptoKit directory allows you to make two-click payments with any of the BitPay merchants. Once you install CryptoKit, you won't need anything else. For more information or to download CryptoKit, visit CryptoKit.com. Hi, listener. Here at Let's Talk Bitcoin, we're building a global network of correspondents able to contribute on-the-ground perspective when cryptocurrency-related information comes across their filters. If you'd like to join our global conversation, send an email with your name and geographic or cultural niche to apply at letstalkbitcoin.com. Just like Bitcoin, the only barrier to entry is your time and good work. Thanks for listening. I'm keeping a healthy attitude of skepticism about myself. That is very, very healthy. Um, I have uh, two gallons of Ethereum Kool-Aid here and I'm getting the ache from drinking it all in one gulp. Uh, that's, and that's cool too. I just get really excited about very cool, elegant technology. I think it's, I think it's very, very cool. Um, and I think it will have a tremendous impact on a number of different things only because it made people think differently about what could be possible with yeah. consensus platforms. And from that point on, now that people think that Ethereum can be done, uh, then people will keep rebuilding that pattern again and again, just as uh, Bitcoin showed that currency is the first app. This showed that other apps can be built in a very generic way. I think that's a great idea to put out there. And, and mostly it moves the conversation forward. It moves the Overton window of what can be considered mainstream consensus. You have a few of the uh, fringy people of Ethereum out there talking about their implementation that will change the world. Well, all of a sudden, Bitcoin sounds like, you know, the old way and conservative way of doing things. Mm -hmm. Right. Exactly. We can't have a 2.0 until you have a 1.0. And at the same time, you, I mean, like, again, these, you know, you can't have altcoins until you have Bitcoin. These things have to catalyze somehow. And once they're catalyzed, the catalyst kind of stops mattering after a while. That's another thing I wonder about, actually. You know, that was a thought that I had at the uh, Toronto Bitcoin conference. It was like, wow, there's so much talk about Ethereum, but 
really like we're just kind of this small group of people who's finding out a lot of information about Ethereum, but most people don't even know what Bitcoin is. It's like step one before step kind of thing. If we were in a linear system, then you'd be right. But that's not where we live. We live in a system where there's incredible amounts of redundancy because nobody knows there's no there's no pervasive communication or registry or anything like that. So it is by definition, hugely redundant, hugely wasteful, but also incredibly robust. Ethereum has been around, I guess, just getting back to the actually talking about at its core what we're talking about here. Ethereum has been around as a concept since late December or mid-December of 2013. And they were supposed to start raising funds at the end of January was the initial date. And then that date has slipped a couple of times. And my understanding of why it slipped is because they're trying to get essentially their legal ducks in a row and have incorporated in Switzerland and done all these other things that also were talked about very heavily at the Toronto conference. You're right, Stephanie. Mm -hmm. There was another thing that was talked about a lot, which was, you know, a lot of criticism. Charles and uh, Vitalik got people standing up at their talks asking about the pre-mine, you know, which is something that we kind of talked about on the show with Anthony DiOrio. That's changed a couple of times and there are people who criticize it and there are also rumors. About well, we don't have all the details about it now. I think, I mean, like, again, I've been complaining about the pre-mine since, you know, since they first announced it because I thought it was going to be a problem because fairness really matters. You know, the perception of fairness and the perception that everyone has skin in the game matters so much in the Bitcoin space and for cryptocurrency enthusiasts, because otherwise you're just giving people a bunch of money and then, well, they can succeed or they can fail, but they got paid either way. And that's not really the way that things happen here. Well, yeah, I, that's exactly it, especially for something that's going to be such a world changing, earth shattering technology, it is really important to have an element of, I guess, fairness at the beginning and not sort of have special rules for certain people. I'm not that concerned because I would say that if that becomes a big concern in practice, then it's not at all difficult to fork Ethereum and make a completely separate copy, call it free Ethereum. And free Ethereum has no pre-mining and is, you know, just like Ethereum, it's open source. There's no barriers to entry. There's no barriers to exit. There's no barriers to fork. But the barrier is getting people to use it, right? And maintain a blockchain. Right. Well, so as I'm saying is if the pre-mine is a problem, then people would rather use one that isn't pre-mined than we can fork it. If people accept that uh, through essentially a market choice and they think that's a valid way to fund the enterprise and to fund the early development, then they'll accept it. So it, the matter is, how much is a fair price to pay for the the early development of that platform? And and if that price is set too high, people will either ignore it or they'll fork it and, and move, move elsewhere. And people have already basically said not basically said they have flat out said and Vitalik has actually, I think, talked to him a bit about it and, you know, seemed to be helping him with the logistics of how to fork Ethereum uh, and the, what they were planning on doing. I don't recall what the uh, what the attempt was called. It was uh, it might have just been a different spelling of, of the same type of pronunciation. The idea was, is that rather than doing a crowd sale in order to deal with the pre-mine, they would take that same pre-mine and distribute it to the entire base of Bitcoin holders based on their current holdings of Bitcoin. It uh, empowers different groups of people in different ways, but it would be a way to vest the entire Bitcoin stakeholder population and make them stakeholders of a different project. Yeah, I mean, I, for, from my perspective, I would agree with with Stephanie in that I would like to see something that is more fair. And one of the ways to make it fair is really simple. 
start with no pre-mining, turn it on. Once you have a proof of concept that works, right, it gets the beta level and you can invite other people to mine, turn it on and let the people who believe in the idea mine it. Uh, and presumably the people who are invested in the project because they built it uh, will be among those and will have uh, plenty of time to prepare to mine it on an equal level as everybody else. And we'll get all of the early adopter advantage of that, just not as much as they would with a pre-mine. I would like to see that, but you know, it's not my choice. And uh, you know, I can then choose if I want to use it or not based on what choices they make. I guess that's a really good segue to the next topic that we should talk about besides Ethereum, um, which did exactly that. Essentially, they were putting out a product called BitShares. But before that, in order to fundraise for it, they had created another type of token called ProtoShares. Longtime listeners of Let's Talk Bitcoin will be familiar with this. So what is a ProtoShare? Because we've been talking about BitShares to this point and we've talked about the Quixote blockchain. I'm not familiar with what ProtoShares is. ProtoShares is our way of doing an IPO for all of the different DACs that we're going to create here at Invictus. It is based on Bitcoin. It uses a new CPU-friendly proof-of-work. And for every ProtoShare you acquire, we will honor that many shares in the new future DACs. So when BitShares does come out, you'll get one BitShare per ProtoShare. When our other DACs come out, whether it's domain shares or other variants, you can read about on our website. They will also honor your position in ProtoShares. So ProtoShares are a way of getting a stake in everything we are doing here at Invictus. And essentially, they said exactly what you're what you're what you're suggesting, which is that we believe in this concept so strongly that we are going to launch this CPU mineable token, and then we're going to compete along with everybody else, and then offer services that people will pay us in ProtoShares. But what happened is they didn't know where to set the difficulty, and so they set the difficulty way too low. So much hash power has been thrown at the network that despite a hard fork to increase difficulty, we have still mined over one-third of the protoshare supply in the first week and a half, as blocks that were supposed to take five minutes to solve were being found every 20 seconds. You know, actually what they thought was going to take one year of the two-year total rollout wound up taking about uh, a month and a half. So was this a good thing or a bad thing? This is an amazingly good result. Our plans with BitShares and other DACs would get nowhere without a large community behind them. And since we have launched ProtoShares, a large community has sprung out of nowhere. People have created block explorers, Chrome plugins, escrow services, mining pools, and enhanced miners. Every one of these people now has a vested interest in the success of BitShares and Invictus Innovations. Invictus didn't get any of the funds. They didn't even get their miners really up in time. They had control of the launch. They were doing all this stuff, but they didn't you know, do it. They thought that they'd have a week since this was going to be such a long process. On the downside, we were unable to mine as many ProShares as we would have liked because most of our own miners didn't show up in time. So we had to mine in the cloud like everyone else. Some people have argued that, that the shares were mined too quickly. But from our perspective, it doesn't really matter how quickly they were mined. It was all a lottery giveaway system anyway. Well, that doesn't that doesn't disqualify practice or the the process. It shows well that's how you don't implement it. So get your ducks in a row. Make sure you set the difficulty correctly, or set it so that the difficulty adjusts rapidly enough to compensate and and create a good mining algorithm that compensates for those things. My point is, they really did think that they had those things. This was like, I mean, they really did, you know. Well, yeah, but they didn't. Well, clearly they didn't. But how do you test these things without? I mean, like, that's the thing is like when you're trying something new like this, how do you test it? How do you do a made safe test without doing a made safe? You know? Yeah. With a proof of concept. 
which right now Ethereum has done four of them. And I think that's a much better plan. This is true. Do repeated rounds of test mining that allow people to participate in various ways. And and so you can gauge the interests of the community. I mean, one thing I'm curious about, I, I don't mean to go back to Ethereum, but this is just a general discussion about, you know, how do you determine transaction fees and mining algorithms and what's the best way to distribute the coins and so forth? Is it just a process of trial and error or like, because it seems like a lot of people are trying to answer those questions. What is the best way of mining and what is the best way of setting transaction fees and what is the best way of distributing coins? And we've seen a lot of attempts, I guess, to make sure that coins and platforms are only mineable on CPUs and all of them have pretty much failed so far, basically at that. Yeah, the market is testing this innovation area very hard. And there's a lot of competition and there's a lot of variation. And I think it's it's really fantastic because monetary algorithmics and planning the algorithm of monetary supply and the algorithm of initial public offerings, essentially, and the algorithm of financializing an open source project, uh, that is an area of active innovation and uh, active research. And there is very, very good market testing going on. And we're learning many, many ways <laughs> with which not to do it, right? And many ways that fail. And that's great because we're gradually narrowing the range of solutions you know, to the uh, Edison myth. I found 9,000 ways not but to do make we a light bulb. To, I mean, Satoshi <laughs> was an economist, right? Uh, like, and he got a lot of, or she, or she, Satoshi, right? <laughs> Satoshi got a lot of things right, you know, from an economic perspective in terms of incentives and so forth. But there are a lot of people kind of trying to change and adjust and mess with a lot of these parameters. And sometimes I wonder, is that even necessary? Like, do we need a coin that's only mineable on CPUs? Or is it okay to have specialization and division of labor? And that's an answer that's going to be answered by the market. So you, you're the, the question is, worth posing because the market-based answer is the most accurate answer you can get. When you're speaking in hypotheticals like uh, Satoshi was when he was, you know, talking about Bitcoin initially. That's observer bias, though. I mean, the reason we're talking about Satoshi's invention, having all the monetary policy more or less right and the incentives right is because we're all using it five years later. And if he hadn't had it right, someone would have built one. Well, I, I know my point was, is that it's about directionality rather than amplitude, right? I mean, so that's the thing is that when you look at predictions, you can predict directionality. So that's what essentially Satoshi did. He looked at what are the fundamental human incentives and how will humans respond given certain types of stimuli. But the stuff he got wrong was the stuff like figuring out, you know, uh, like it was good that he made a self-adjusting system. That's the thing about it is that he made a lot of these systems where he didn't have to know the answer. All he had to do was know what the right answer was and create a system that self-adjusted to deliver that regardless of what was going on in the real world. I think it's much the same here. And, and if that hadn't worked, we wouldn't be talking about it now because somebody else would have taken that idea, said, well, Satoshi gave us a good idea for proof of work, decentralized systems, but he got all the algorithms wrong. So here's one that does it better. And we would be talking about that instead. So there's an observer bias here. We're talking about this one as the one that worked because it worked. But the point is, is that there are some things that you can predict with some sort of reasonable degree of certainty because they're based on, you know, uh, physics. 
You know, and there are some things that you can't because they're based on humans and the things that are based on humans like we you couldn't you couldn't predict the ASIC rush. Right. Because you couldn't predict that mining would become so popular as a means of onboarding because you couldn't predict that it would be so impossible to get uh, bitcoins any other way. Yeah. Let's leave those to self-adjusting dynamic algorithms so you don't have to predict. Right. So that's the thing is that with a lot of these new ideas, how do you do that? If you're trying to take mining and you view it as something that is inefficient, frankly, for the purpose that it's providing, and that's the argument that people who are on the proof of stake side versus the proof of work side make, you know, how do you do that without actually launching product? And I think that, you know, I mean, you, you just you just have to you just have to launch. Right. And learn the answer the hard way. And the market will reward those who find the right answer and, and uh, find it the hard way, which is through trial and error. I think that BitPay is a good example of someone who found the right way through that morass where most of the other people who are in that space, most of the other groups that were in that space didn't really do so well. We don't really talk about any of them. We don't know any of them. What you said about the market determining the right answer, Andreas, I agree with. The important thing is to be able to opt out and to be able to basically vote with your energy and use whichever platform or coin or whatever you agree with and you like. And as long as people can do that and have the right of exit, then it's fine. So I think that Ethereum is a very interesting project, but it's still really too early. You know, again, like the the next big milestone, as far as I'm concerned, is when we get the final set of rules about the crowd sale. At that point, then we'll have a clear idea of what they're actually doing, what it's going to cost, what they're taking for themselves. And then we can all make the kind of judgment for ourselves whether or not it's a project we want to support. I think the technology is fascinating. And I think that the team they've put together is great. But you're right. Ultimately, it's going to kind of just depend on what it says. And in the meantime, here's the thing. This exploration so far has given us Proof of Concept 4, which is a a platform that you can run with mineable test chain that you can mine test Ether on. And more importantly, Serpent, which is the new iteration of the language, a Python-esque language that you can use to write contracts. And people can try that today. They can try that either by running the Ethereum Proof of Concept 4, or they can try it through a simulator like MintChalk, MintChalk.com, I believe is the URL, and try out the contract language and simulate it and see what they can build with it. All of that experimentation is actually delivering some very, very interesting things that I find intriguing and I'm playing with as often as I can in order to learn what we can do with such a platform. And the nice thing about all of that is that whether Ethereum, the project, Ethereum, the company, Ethereum, the brand survives or not, the the experimentation and the lessons we've learned through that experimentation persist. Andreas, I just have a question for my own curiosity. Since you've played with the Ethereum proof of concept, how are transaction fees handled in that? What is the mining algorithm? Because I remember Vitalik saying just in April that the, they weren't really sure exactly what mining al- algorithm they were going to use. And I remember uh, a blog post a couple of months ago saying that, um, you know, perhaps transaction fees aren't best determined by the market and we may have to have some people step in and try to determine how to decide them. And of course, you know, that I, I was a little, you know, iffy about that. So I'm curious about what, what those things have shaken out as a, in the current form. They haven't. Most of the experimentation right now is around the contract language, which which I think is where the, the main innovation is, because the mining algorithm and the fees in Ethereum are means to an end. And the end is a Turing complete scripting language. Most of the proof of concept effort has gone into refining the, the Turing complete scripting language. 
And now we've said that a couple of times. Let's just quickly define Turing complete scripting language. Well, it's basically a programming language with which you can write contracts. And it's a, a programming language with which you can write applications that use a consensus blockchain underneath. And these are applications are executed by the Ethereum network. And so Serpent is the language, the, the latest iteration of that. Now, uh, for example, you can write a currency or you can write an exchange or you can write a mining pool or you can write a, a, a generic contract like a joint account or a multi-signature account. Uh, you can write those as contracts instead of, ex- uh, instead of having to have those as features in the system, you can write them using a general purpose programming language. So that's where most of the research has gone. The latest iteration I looked at had uh, SHA as the mining algorithm, uh, which is basically no innovation at all. They, they haven't changed. They're just basically using SHA-256. So it's, it's the same as, as Bitcoin. And the, and the fees were, were fixed by the client. So at the moment... Keep in mind, you're, you're mining test ether, which is just like being on testnet. And just like on testnet, the difficulty is pretty low. So anybody can go in and mine. And I mine 50,000. I mean, keep in mind, you're, you're mining test ether, which is just like being on testnet. And just like on testnet, the difficulty is pretty low. So anybody can go in and mine. And I mine 50,000 ether over a period of time just with, on my laptop. And so it allows you to mine enough to play around with contracts. And uh, that's not worth anything because it's not real ether, it's test ether. And, you know, it doesn't answer any of those questions. But what it does answer is what can I do with the contracts and what kind of contracts can I write? And that's the question I'm most interested in. So that's why I'm playing with it. But it hasn't answered your questions yet, Stephanie. They're holding those things constant. You said that these things are just a means to an end. You said the transaction fees and the mining algorithm are means to an end, which is the contracts. And that may be so, but they're very important very. means. And the means have to be compatible with very. the end yeah. uh, for something to, to work out. And those are very important incentives that are not just, you know, you can't just put anything in there and it'll work. Absolutely. So, I mean, I think those are super important questions to answer and they may give us the wrong answers we'll we'll find out and if they give us the wrong answers at least at the end of it we'll have a new scripting language for doing contracts and we can then implement uh, an alternative alt contract chain with perhaps better answers to the mining and fee question but you're absolutely right stephanie without the right answers to those questions the project itself fails these questions just don't necessarily have answers yet. And it seems like Ethereum, I mean, they're planning on launching in what, Q3? Something like that. So, I mean, they have some time to kind of figure out exactly what they want to decide. And I actually appreciate that they're not like blasting us with every single decision they make and then changing their mind because they're they're wrong about a lot of stuff. You know, I mean, like they've had a couple of different mining algorithms already. They haven't been widely widely talked about because when they've actually put them into practice, it hasn't been as robust against the kinds of attacks that they wanted it to be. And so, again, like the last time that I was speaking with uh, Vitalik about this, he was talking about taking the idea since the whole point of the Ethereum contract platform is to execute contracts. Right. The best proof of work that would target the most general computing would, in fact, be something that doesn't have a specific proof of work at all, but just executes random code that has uh, been properly paid for, you know, and uh, run through the Ethereum network. So essentially what you're doing is the proof of work for running the network is running the network. 
So contract execution is the shared proof of work. And if you execute enough contracts and provide value, I mean, that's the thing. You've got to provide value to the network. And the proof of work can either do that indirectly by securing the network, or it can do it directly, as you've discussed in things like proof of publishing or in MadeSafe's proof of resource, or as Vitalik said here, essentially proof of contract execution. It's not really a sticking point for me. I want to know the answers to these questions yet, but I appreciate that I don't have people telling me things that they don't know are true. Because there are, there's a lot of talk. And so I, I'm okay with them being quiet about that. You know, I'm not, I don't have any stake in it whatsoever at this point. And if it comes out and the answers to those questions aren't ones that I like, then I won't. So, I mean, that's kind of the thing is that in this initial period where there's no, you know, where there's no crowd sale possible, it's more entertaining than it is interesting as far as, you know, looking at, do I want to put myself in this? But at a certain point, you know, those questions are going to get answered because they have to be. You bring up an interesting point. Adam, about the level of, I guess, how public a company makes their sausage making, you know what I mean? And I'm talking about like developing the product and going through different iterations of what they're going to make certain parameters do. You know, with BitShares, like we've been talking about before, we've seen BitShares go through a lot of different um, phases, you know, with how they run the client and uh, the mining and the focus of the company and all that kind of thing. And, you know, some people get really uncomfortable with that when they see all these decisions kind of being made out in public. Whereas with Ethereum, they, I, I agree that they do kind of keep it a little more uh, close to their chest. And some people might be uncomfortable with that because they want to know everything that's going on. There's some innovation happening there too, I guess, in like just the structure of like how public companies are with designing these new technologies that nobody has the answers to because they haven't existed yet. Uh, everybody's learning from everybody else in space. That's really the, one of the cooler parts about these meta platforms is that there's competition. They all want to win, but there's not hostility. And mostly they're actually helping each other. There's talk about putting on joint conferences. You know, there's a lot of solidarity within that that space itself. So really, uh, <laughs> I, I don't I don't know if I agree with that. <laughs> no. I mean, who, who are you seeing who are, who are going after each other? I'm just not seeing it. Well, I mean, I know there have been some, you know, some disagreements, some companies breaking up and, you know, there's a lot. OK, if we're talking specifically about Daniel Larimer and Charles Hoskinson, yeah. who founded uh, who founded Invictus Innovations together. And then uh, Charles left the company in October of last year. And then they launched ProtoShares two months later. No, I'm sorry, a month later. Um, yes, there is. You know, I mean, like, again, I'm sure that wasn't amicable. But at the same time, it's not open hostility. And it's literally, it's not between those two projects. It's just between those two individuals, if there's anything there at all. Why can't we all get along? <laughs> For the most part, people are getting along. And, you know, even projects that directly compete with each other, as I would argue, Counterparty and MasterCoin do, you know, they're pretty much getting along. They're learning from each other. They're taking note of each other's mistakes and what they're doing right. And they're trying to replicate it. And again, I think that's the whole thing about the open source space is that this is the point. You know, you don't catalyze the later projects until you have the earlier projects that annoy some of those people who then go and create the later projects. I think it's healthy competition. Yes, we have digressed quite a bit on the Ethereum topic. I do want to get to these other uh, protocols uh, while we're on this topic. So let's, uh, let's jump to BitShares real quick. So I talked a little bit about BitShares in the topic with Ethereum, but there's been a lot of changes and I just kind of want to bring people up to date because I'm sure there are some folks who, uh, who, you know, paid attention to it last when we talked about them on the show and haven't really done so since. BitShares started off with the idea that it was going to be an entirely mined coin. And after the experience with ProtoShares, where basically they didn't, 
they weren't able to capture any of the of the money. And they saw that the money was instead going to the Amazon cloud service where people were mining there. They basically said, well, if people are just going to dump money into a company, why not make it our company? And so they created something called angel shares. So when they made this switch, they moved entirely away from the idea of mining. And ProtoShares remained a mine token, but AngelShares was introduced where basically you could give money to addresses that Invictus controlled with the idea that they would use it to uh, finance their operation and to catalyze and nurture the DAC environment, the distributed autonomous company ecosystem that they had been talking about and were trying to create. And so that was a pretty successful thing. They had a launch date set for their Quixote project. The primary problem we have is tying a name to a public key in a way that cannot be spooked. Traditionally, the way this is done is you have certificate authorities like VeriSign that will sign the public key for your domain names that you're visiting. The problem is the NSA can force these companies to forge signatures. You can't really trust it. It's a centralized solution. So we've replaced the certificate authorities with a blockchain. Which was their initial messaging product they talked to us about on January the 1st, 2014. And that came and went due to some changes. And basically just because they spent so much time in the beginning of the process trying to control ProtoShares, which was totally out of control. And they had to do a bunch of crisis management on it. Because again, as I mentioned, they set the difficulty too low, not knowing what a good difficulty would be, and then had no ability to, to fix it when it got away from them. So there have been changes, is the, is the short version. Uh, we went from mining with a proof of work that was supposed to be specifically for computers, so it wouldn't be scalable. Did wind up being scalable to GPUs, but there are no ASICs created for it. And in general, ProtoShares is not doing well, is not very mined or anything like that. The BitShares project is where pretty much all of the focus has shifted to. BitShares is now a project that they're trying to base on a technology called Delegated Proof of Stake. And the idea behind delegated proof of stake is that if we're not going to be mining the currency and people just have the currency, then people can essentially vote on delegates. This is a simplification of this system, um, but they vote on delegates with their stake. And then those delegates are the ones who are signing and processing blocks. And so because of this, you have a much less decentralized system than you do in a conventional node based system, except when you take into account mining. It's also much faster, exactly. Uh, that's the, and so just like Ripple has a different way of doing things, so does delegated proof of stake. The downside about the delegated proof of stake is that it's a completely untested technology that Daniel uh, Larimer came up with, uh, I guess, about a month and a half ago, and that they've been working to implement since. So this meant that where they were one of the first companies to kind of enter this 2.0 space, now actually they're still working on their core technology and most of the features they were actually talking about, which were things like uh, BitGold and, you know, uh, hedging contracts and things like that, are kind of waiting for this core underlying technology to go through. The part that's been really frustrating for me about the experience with Invictus, and I think for a lot of other people too, is that they've not done a good job of communicating these changes. And a lot of times things have happened with very short notice. You know, they didn't have a blog up. Uh, the only place you could go for information on what was going on was to actually read through a whole bunch of threads on their forums. Um, they recently got a blog up now in the last uh, month. So that's good. And they're making uh, progress. They have a new website. It's a kind of mess of a project. I'm hoping that they come out with something good. But at this point, uh, they've missed a lot of a lot of launch dates. I've been critical, I guess, of them for, you know, kind of changing a lot and not necessarily communicating about it. 
to a certain extent, it's it's hard to pull off a project like that, especially when you realize you need to kind of pivot and redirect. It's really hard to make sure that you do that in a way that everybody likes. People are going to be unhappy with it. The biggest companies all have a consistent message, you know, like the, the ones that really succeed. They kind of do one thing and they do it really well and they become known for it at least until they become known and then maybe they branch out. But at first, it's it's usually a focus on one thing. Maybe they're going in that direction or maybe they could benefit from going in that direction. It's a cool technology, you know, BitShares. I, w- I was pretty excited about it when it first came out. And I still think it has potential. I still think it has potential, too. It just becomes a lot less unique as time goes on and other options come out and, you know, release actual product right. that were announced after the BitShares product was to begin with. So, I mean, yeah, like that's the thing is that it's, it's not that this is a bad decision necessarily. It's just that it's a big gamble. Mm. If you say, okay, well, we're going to fix mining where nobody else has fixed mining, then you actually have to do it. Otherwise, you don't have a product. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you do all the other stuff you're going to do and then work on fixing the fundamental infrastructure layer and then launch a product that is based on this new technology you've created and tested and vetted and all this other stuff while you had a product that did what you said was going to do and actually works with the current environment, I feel like Invictus has really bet very heavily on completely reinventing transaction processing. And I'm just not convinced that it was the best decision given the overall environment that we're in. This is Stephen Levine, CFO of Let's Talk Bitcoin. As someone who pays bills with Bitcoin, I find it immensely satisfying that I can pay our designer in Canada quickly and easily. A couple of button clicks and Bitcoin moves over miles and borders, unfettered by overbearing bureaucracy. It is our goal here at Let's Talk Bitcoin to create structures that allow Bitcoin and all of its descendants to thrive and grow into the safe, free, and fair invention that Satoshi wrote about. In my spare time, I'm also the president of Bitcoin Packaging. BitcoinPackaging.com makes it easy to use your currency of choice to purchase mundane products. We empower you to change the financial world by spending your Bitcoin. When you buy a product from BitcoinPackaging.com with Bitcoin, we will send you a 10% rebate off of the already low prices. BitcoinPackaging.com is a virtual company. We have no warehouse, trucks, or salespeople. Come to our store, take a look around, spend some Bitcoin, and tell your friends. BitcoinPackaging.com They're actually not even Invictus anymore, right? They're BitShares. No, they are Invictus. BitShares, they've separated the brands or at least tried to. I don't know. The, the messaging is incredibly confusing to me. I'm very, it's been a very frustrating experience. But no, they are still Invictus. It's confusing to you and you know it quite well. It's even more confusing to the rest of us. But I think this demonstrates the thing that Stephanie was talking about, which is the importance of focus. The startups get distracted and get pulled in multiple directions as they take initial customer feedback or they try to do too much or they get distracted by things that are not strategic and not core to their function. And that's usually what kills a startup. It's not starvation because they don't have enough things to pursue or enough market opportunities. It's it's a diffusion of focus and and basically trying to take on too much and and getting completely overwhelmed. So once again, I'm kind of just waiting to see what happens with that project. Supposedly, we have a release date coming up for a test net. And again, like, I just want to see that there's a product here. You know, another thing that I, I'm curious how it's going to work out is the legal aspects of these things. 
I know like Ethereum's trying really hard to make sure that they don't run afoul of whatever regulators and I'm sure the other ones are too, but it's an uncharted territory. Like I'm sure there are going to be some government agents who are going to try to say that whatever any one of these companies is breaking some laws, you know, whether it's SEC or some other agency or some other country or, or whatever. I mean, it's a real challenge to figure out how to kind of protect yourself in an environment like that. It's arbitrary. So uh, the next one that came out chronologically, I think, is is Counterparty. But Counterparty, we just talked with, uh, I just talked with uh, Robbie, one of the developers on episode 109. You can learn a lot about it there. Let's talk about NXT real quick. NXT has kind of always been this wildcard project that had a truly anonymous founder, whereas Counterparty recently had their developers come out and essentially do a road show in uh, Silicon Valley, trying to you know raise awareness about the Counterparty project. The NXT guy always spoke through a proxy. At least that's what we're led to understand, because the person who was his proxy was also an anonymous person. <laughs> For listeners who didn't follow NXT, NXT is a alternative implementation. You know, it was done in Java. It's completely different code from what Bitcoin or any of the other cryptocurrencies that are out there. And it uh, implemented one of the earlier uh, asset exchanges, but it was one of the less featured asset exchanges. So I think that they're adding more functionality to it now. But it's been kind of this this interesting thing because because they have no philosophical leadership whatsoever. Basically, People are just there like there. There are no leaders within this space, not even self-appointed leaders, generally speaking. There are people who step up because literally nobody else has done it, but they don't seem terribly well equipped for the job and they don't even really seem to want to do it. Just seems like they're doing it because, hey, somebody has to do it and this is a way I can contribute. And this contrasts to a lot of the projects that are out there. Uh, Well, actually, BitShares is an interesting one of them because BitShares raised money and haven't done too much with it. And so where projects like a project recently went from BitShares to NXT, that was going to be an exchange for BitShares. But because again, they're having delays and it was hard, they were actually able to go to the NXT community, say, hey, we need this much funding to do this with NXT. And the community itself actually ponied up, invested in the thing, and it's going to happen. So it's been interesting watching the headless nature of this thing. While they don't have any sort of broad strategy, They do have a lot of tactical ability. Yeah. And actually, very recently, BC Next, who was like the Satoshi of Next, said that he or she was going to disappear and was like walking away and that their next project would be one that was public and had their name attached to it. The person completely walked away like a month before that, too. Was this before Circle opened? (laughs) (laughs) And we know what you're up to, Jeremy. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> somehow no, i doubt okay. that but anything's possible <laughs> do we need the disclaimer yeah, for that uh, ridiculously this... wild speculation or you just let it run <laughs> i think they could tell you're joking <laughs> but yeah i mean bc next kind of walked away and said all right it's in the community's hands now if you guys want to do something with this go ahead do it and uh yeah that's kind of an interesting approach We haven't seen that with many other projects. Well, sure we have. It's the Satoshi approach. Well, yeah. uh, Okay, sure. Fine. I was thinking projects outside of Bitcoin, but you're right. Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) basically. So that redundancy, you know, again, like it's that it's that we can't all work in a linear fashion in Bitcoin because there's nobody in charge. But here that's even more true because like the core dev team doesn't even want any responsibility. You know, like I feel like the core devs in Bitcoin, they, they kind of know what they want Bitcoin to be like. They have an idea of what they think it's going to develop into or what they're going to add to it or what have you. And so, you know, like if someone has an idea that's directly contrary to that, that can cause friction. 
But the NXT developers really seem like they have no ambitions whatsoever and are mostly scared that their involvement is going to get them in trouble. And so, you know, like one of the primary developers who goes by the name Jean-Luc Picard, where I think he's done a wallet um, and works on the core code, too has uh like i saw a post from him the other day that basically said that if nominated i will not run if elected i will not serve you know and like i'm i'm gonna develop <laughs> and there's nothing you can do to make me do anything else right that has meant that there actually is a lot of development in nxt and where you know a project like bitcoin now i think we have somewhere above 10 uh wallets nxt launched with seven and they have a bunch more in the works too so there's just all this redundancy that you get by not having anybody like by not even having anybody who you would want to ask for permission. Like people might want to ask somebody for permission in Bitcoin, but in NXT, who the heck are you going to do that with? There's nobody. I'd like to announce the launch of the NXT. <laughs> it's Boo, an association that's centralized. <laughs> all come and ask me for permission. It's a very different approach to doing things. It's kind of uh, planned anarchy. It's just deliberate. That's a big draw for a lot yeah, of people, absolutely. though. Of course it is. Now, the question is whether it works and scales. Hey. And, and that, again, is going to be answered by the market. So, you know, it remains yeah. to be seen if indeed it works and scales. But so far, it seems to be working. And I mean, like, again, they have a bunch of wallets out there on the main net. You know, people are transacting value. I don't really think there's too much in the way of, like, commerce or acceptance. And I know that it's been really, this is another interesting part. Uh, for people who are thinking about making really innovative coins, uh, you should understand that uh, a coin like NXT has a real problem when it comes to getting included on exchanges simply because it's so different. It's completely different from, uh, from yeah. Bitcoin, which is what all these exchanges a are used of- to incorporating. So every time they incorporate an alt, they basically just do the same thing they did for Bitcoin with a little bit of different information and run a different thing. But with this, it's totally different. Yeah, I remember at one point, maybe a couple of months ago, there were a lot of exchanges that were basically processing next withdrawals manually, uh, which caused like a lot of delays and people were like, what's going on here? But, you know, I think we got to give them credit for actually having a distributed exchange, right? That's something that a lot of people talk about, but not many actually have. And even if it's rudimentary, they do have something that kind of works, right? Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, So again, in trying to figure out where I want to build LTB coin, I've looked at all of these options really in depth and worked through, you know, and worked with a variety of the wallet softwares on each one. And just generally speaking, you know, NXT is pretty solid, but it feels stiff. Everything I do with it, like this is like, um, you know, the difference between an application that feels really good to use and an application that doesn't feel really good to use, a lot of times it's just how responsive it feels. And that's something that I get with a lot of this early stuff is there's no responsiveness whatsoever in it. And a lot of the things mm-hmm. that you would intuitively think, like, you know, I could click and drag this or I could right click on this and bring up, you know, more information about it or something like that are instead hidden behind really static, you know, like one click menus or, or something like that, buried stuff. There's a lot of this uh, user experience stuff that still has a long way to go. And I mean, that's another thing I've noticed in the last six months is that a lot of people who have a lot of skills on the user experience side are really jumping into Bitcoin, where before it was mostly developers. So, yeah, I absolutely think that uh, NXT deserves a lot of credit. and I'm continuing to pay attention to it. It just didn't fit the needs for what we were doing with LTB coin um, because it didn't have as full featured and decentralized asset exchange as ultimately counterparty, uh, which is who we picked to build mm. LTB coin on. But, you know, it's another funny thing. You said that having a, an asset exchange is a big deal and you're totally right. But isn't it hilarious that we went from nobody having an asset exchange to now there being three that are working right now and available on MasterCoin Counterparty and uh, NXT inside of like two months of each other? Yeah, absolutely. It's 
A lot of these technologies, you know, people have the same idea and uh, they're racing to get it out. And sometimes it's not just one entity that comes out with a new technology first. Sometimes it's kind of a bunch, like like a little bunch of grapes. They all come out at once. So, yeah, more competition. That's great. People use the one they like best. Yeah, I mean, that's the core is that we're solving problems here. You know, the problems don't stop being problems just because someone else is working on a solution for that problem. They stop being problems when they're actually solved. And so, I mean, that's, that's, you know, it's uh, referencing back to Andreas's earlier comment, you know, the market is deciding the market is making these decisions because that those are the people who stick around and those are the solutions that succeed. And those are the solutions that get copied more than anything else. Yeah. What all of this demonstrates is that Bitcoin opened the door to currency being a choice. And once you open the door to currency being a choice and people start making choices, then you unleash this incredible wave of innovation that was pent up before. And, uh, you know, at first it seems weird because like, oh, I have to make all these choices. It's not so simple. At least before, you know, I had dollars. That's all. No choice. (laughs) And uh, I didn't really need to think about what the monetary policy was or what the decentralization platform was or um, how it was tweaked or how it was operating, where the control line, you know, all of those things we don't need to think about because we don't have a choice. Now we need to think about those and there's lots of different choices to make and that can be overwhelming. But out of those choices, you get innovation, you get improvement. And we're seeing a kind of a brave new world where currency is an experimental playground. And even beyond that, consensus blockchain platforms are an experimental playground. And we're going to see a lot of experimentation go on in the next couple of years. So wrapping this up, uh, if you'd like to learn more about any of the tokens that we talked about, you can find information about MasterCoin at MasterCoin.org. You can find information about BitShares at BitShares.org. You can find information about Ethereum at Ethereum.org. You can find information about NXT at MyNXT.info. And if you'd like to learn more about Counterparty, you can go to Counterparty.co. This was definitely not a complete rundown of any of these things. It was more just kind of an update that then, you know, turned into a a kind of long and meandering conversation. So uh, I absolutely encourage you to do your own research um, on all of these things before putting any of your own funds on the line. And also remember that we're kind of acting in our own best interest, too. You know, people who are in favor of Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies tend to be invested in them. And this is very true, at least for me. Can we maybe give a little update about LTB coin? I wonder if people are wondering about that. (laughs) <laughs> oh, I don't know. I mean, <laughs> well, I think the audience may want to know how's it coming? You know, when's it going to come out? And let's talk. Bitcoin will be out as soon as we can get it out. <laughs> We're working very hard to make it a very innovative product. And I think that when people see what we've come up with, it'll be uh, really interesting. All of the basics are there, but there are a lot more specifics and there are a lot more systems to include everybody and ultimately to try and improve the quality of content, both on the written side instead of just on the audio side, which is pretty much what I had been building it for, too. So ultimately, I hope that the model that we're launching will compete with uh, the Huffington Post, essentially, in that it will uh, allow for users to create their own blog uh, or their own show and essentially have the audience or the platform be able to curate it up so that it can see the exposure um, and recognition that it deserves based on the quality of it. And that's hard to do, but uh, I think we've got some good solutions. And it's really just about building tools at this point, because as with all of this stuff, I mean, literally, it's like if you have a car before there are gas stations, you know, 
I mean, it's useful, but it's not <laughs> yeah. that useful. And so somebody has to build a gas station. So that's basically where we are now is we're working with people to build gas stations and building gas stations ourselves so that then all this stuff can happen and not be such a manual process. Mm-hmm. It's hard to do, but I think it's uh, worth doing because it changes the nature of uh, publishing dramatically. Well, ultimately, this changes the nature of everything. I mean, that's that's the again, like it's that no monopolies thing. You know, I mean, like uh, in a in a future show, we'll talk about this. But um, I had an article published with uh, TechCrunch that was pulled um, from TechCrunch. It was a good article, too, about oh, MadeSafe yeah. because uh, I had a tip widget in it. And so, like, I had cleared it with my editor. Uh, at TechCrunch and like it was no big deal. We had talked about it weeks before and I was like, hey, I'm going to do this. And uh, it got included in the thing and it caused this big political kerfluffle within their organization, I guess, because my article got pulled, was never put back up. I was never compensated for it. It was like this thing. But I think it's that that was the first instance of a uh, of an article being pulled for the inclusion of a Bitcoin display widget. <laughs> mm. So I, I was pretty happy to have that. Well, I hope it gets you more publicity than a TechCrunch article could. (laughs) Well, that's okay. Like I said, this is all just about the firsts, right? I mean, like in order for there to be a second, there has to be a first. I'm very, I'm always very happy to be be first wherever possible. What was the big problem (laughs) with you having a tip widget? There's a big question about morally, is it okay for readers or an audience to directly compensate the content creators in a system where that's not the way it normally works. The way it normally works is that TechCrunch would have paid me $100 as a freelancer for the article, and that would have been it. But the interesting part was is that in the hour that it was up, uh, I received, I think, $2.50 worth of uh, Bitcoin. And so in that hour, from a couple of people giving me like 25 cents on average, I had, you know, like one twenty-fifth of the entire amount that I was going to make Uh, from that article. And this was from, you know, it not being up very much about an incredibly technical topic when very few people actually have Bitcoin that they want to spend like this. So again, Mm -hmm. I I think that the model of connecting content creators directly to their audience and turning the platform instead of being this enabling thing where it's like a gatekeeper, instead it becomes a utility. And as a utility, you charge much, much, much lower rates because you're a utility. You're, I mean, and you have competition because there are other platforms that people can choose to use. So again, that's that's kind of the, the core idea here is that this is something that if it could be stopped, it would be stopped. I mean, anything disruptive that can be stopped will be stopped in the environment that we live in now simply because disruption comes at the cost of the legacy. And so that's the thing is that you can't stop this stuff. So whether we're talking about money, whether we're talking about compensation, whether we're talking about employment in general, You can't stop this stuff, and so it's the future. Thanks for listening to episode 112 of Let's Talk Bitcoin. Content for this episode was provided by Stephanie Murphy, Andreas Antonopoulos, and Adam B. Levine. This episode was edited by Adam B. Levine. Music for this episode was provided by Jared Rubens and Calvin Henderson. Any questions or comments, email adam at letstalkbitcoin.com.